Good morning. It's very good to see you all here today. I got too much to say, so we're just going to have to get on with it and suffer our way through it. <clears throat> law or grace? Which is it? We hear a lot of talk about this these days, law or grace. Uh, the popular term, of course, is grace, uh, to the exclusion of law in some people's minds. But uh, we need to make sure we understand the difference between the two. Uh, the question uh, came several years ago, why do some insist that Christians are under law today? We are not under law, but grace. Uh, questions like this uh, is something I receive all the time. Uh, sometimes uh, one of them sticks in my head and eventually I'll bring it back up time and time again. Uh, the dispute over law or grace as it rages, uh, unnecessarily I might add, comes from John chapter 1 and verse 17. John said the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Uh, that statement right there is the reason behind many people's uh, thinking that uh, the law is something that pertained in the Old Testament era, whereas grace is what we live under today, coming through Jesus Christ. It was the law in the Old Testament. It is grace in the New Testament. Now, that's the thinking uh, that goes on uh, among some in the religious community. One thing that uh, I've, I've never gotten an answer to is what are you going to do with truth? Now, truth is also injected in there. What is truth? It's the revelation of law, and it's the revelation of, of course, the actions of Christ and his church afterwards. But it does pertain law. That word is just kind of omitted as being significant, and the focus is on the two words, law and grace. Uh, live your life in the way you choose. This is... Uh, taught by many people today uh i can you know you understand why it's you know it sounds great if you can be religious and have the hope of heaven live how you choose to live you know you can't go out here and do really evil stuff but if you you know you want to do this that or the other well, it's okay you know it's no big deal it's not a problem grace covers all that stuff that's the idea uh that's being spread uh, among many people and of course it's appealing because you know it's a license to sin if you want to call it what it is it uh, gives you the opportunity to sin without being held accountable for that sin well you and i know that that's not true uh, we know that the lord is going to judge our entire life it's not going to be a matter of pick and choose religion it's uh, it's a matter of uh, loving and living God's truth. This is what Jesus did, and this is what we're supposed to do as well. In Jude 1, <clears throat> verses 3 and 4, Jude said, Certain men have crept in unnoticed, crept into the church. These men were long ago, they were marked out, they were spoken of for this particular condemnation. What were they? They were ungodly men. These were men who put uh, uh, grace above truth as though there were no law. What was the problem with these fellows? They turned grace into lewdness. 
and lewdness is grossly gross fleshly indulgence. Uh, in order to get understand, the pagan religions uh, had a lot of sexual immorality. It was even a part of their worship. Uh, they engaged in uh, all, all sorts of activities that we don't even really think of as a culture, much less a church. But the Christians now, they were having to abandon such things. Well, they didn't want to because they enjoyed it. They enjoyed uh, the, the pleasure, uh, the pleasure value of this lewdness that they engaged in. And these men would encourage them, teaching them that it's okay. Grace, grace overlooks such things. God is good, God is kind, God is loving. God wants you to be saved. God is very gracious and he doesn't, he doesn't look at the small details. We're all human after all. We all have our inconsistencies. Go ahead. It's not a problem. Jesus said these are ungodly men. There are two predominant systems uh, spoken of in the Bible. The first and the second. The first is described in several different ways. Sometimes it's called the first law, the first will, the first covenant, or the first testament. Well, the second is spoken of in the same manner. It's the second one, though. It would leave you with the impression, the way I've got it here, that there's only two wills or laws or covenants. But that would be a, a false impression as well. Actually, there are thousands of wills, testaments, and such things spoken of in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 6, 18, for example, the Lord said, I will establish my covenant with you, Noah. Now, right there, we've got three covenants. Paul only speaks of a first and a second. Now we found a third. What are we going to do with it? There are two predominant systems. That's what you want to keep in mind. There aren't just two covenants, two wills. There are many but there's only two that are spoken of with such grave circumstances in Scripture. In Jeremiah 31, 31-4, the prophet said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers, in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, that was the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this, this is the covenant that I will make, that's future tense. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. They'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says Jehovah. 
Notice he says, I will put my law. He's talking about the Christian era now. He's talking about the law that's going to come with Jesus the Christ. Just like Moses has spoken of, the prophet. And when that prophet comes into this world, listen to him. Not me, listen to him. And this is what Je Jeremiah is prophesying, this time. What happens in this time? I'll put my law on their heart. Now, God doesn't zap the law into your heart. Some say he does. He does not. God doesn't zap the law into your heart. But it's a law that appeals to the heart. It's a law that one wants to absorb in the heart because of the, the love, the graciousness, the goodness that's expressed by God towards individuals. Not only that, I will write my law on their hearts. The law will be in their minds and in their hearts. But some say there's no law today. Jeremiah said there would be. It was going to be in the mind and in the heart. And no more shall every man teach his neighbor, know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least to the greatest, says Jehovah, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. This is obviously after the crucifixion and resurrection of the Christ. It was at that time that the sin uh, tragedy was paid for by the Son of God. It was at that time when God would forgive people and not remember their sins anymore. In the Old Testament, they would, they would offer up a sacrifice for their sins, and then the next year, they would have to offer sacrifice for their sins again. Why? Because the sins were rolled forward. God remembered their sins the next year, and they had to repeat the process. They had to ask for forgiveness and offer the sacrifice again. It just rolled over and over and over. Now, Jeremiah's talking about a time when the Lord will forgive and he will never again remember the sin. When did that take place? That took place after Christ came into the world. He lived, he died, and he rose from the grave. It was at that time that Jeremiah is alluding to. And what did he say about it? I will put my law in their minds. I will put my law in their hearts. Oh, no, there's law in the New Testament. Yes, there is. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. <clears throat> We've got the two predominant systems. There's the first and the second, the old and the new. Uh, the first and second we read about in Hebrews 8 and 7. The old and the new we read about in Hebrews 8, 13. But we're talking about John chapter 1 and verse 17. How does John 1, 17 compare with these other statements by these other authors? Well, in John 1, 17, John spoke about law and grace. These are two predominant systems, okay? The law is the same as the first law, the first will, the first covenant, the first testament. Grace is the same as the second or the new. Just like we're accustomed to using the terms, the first and the second, the old and the new testament. Even so, John is referring to the old as the law. He's referring to the new as the grace. It's not that grace reigns absence of law. It's simply a way of designating a different period that we live in. Under the old system, sins were not forgiven 
under the new system, sins are forgiven. Why? By, by the grace of God, they're forgiven. So it's simply a reference to the same thing we read about when we talk about the Old and the New Testament. We're talking about the era of, of law and the era of grace. There's no difference in it. But some, they make a difference. And because of that, they make mistakes. For example, they say during that period of law, there was no grace. There was no grace in the Old Testament. People were saved by law, not by grace. In the New Testament, we're saved by grace, but no law. Law doesn't factor in. It's because of grace we are saved, period. And law has nothing to do with it. And they're wrong. They're wrong. They're wrong. They're wrong. And they're not only losing their own souls, but they're losing the souls of thousands of other people as well. And that is a tragedy. We've got to understand the difference between grace and law. There is a difference. There is a difference, and it's very important. The purpose of the law of Moses is pointed out fairly simply, I think. First, it was to teach that a violation of divine law separates a sinner from God. One of the things people had to learn was that if you sin, you will be severed from God. And of course, if you're severed from God, you're severed from life, from hope, from mercy. And they had to know that. And we see various examples of the expression throughout the Old Testament. One is in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Behold, Isaiah says, they're grumbling, grumbling, grumbling. Because Jehovah isn't being good to them. He's not being kind. He's not keeping up his end of the bargain. He's letting us suffer. Why does he let us suffer? Why doesn't he listen when we pray to him? Why isn't he? Where is God? Something's going to rye. And Isaiah is responding to their petitions. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor is ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. What happened? Sin was like a wall that was built between the people of Israel and God, and this wall made it impossible for communication to be um, carried out. They prayed and they prayed and they prayed, but God wouldn't listen. You won't listen to me. I'm not going to listen to you either. And they suffered without help coming to their rescue. This is one of the reasons the Old Testament is written for us even to today. Remember the things written before time were written for our learning, Romans 15 and 4? It's for us to learn from. What do we learn? That sin separates us from God. If I engage in sin, my relationship with God is damaged. And if I continue to engage in sin, my relationship to God will be severed. It's just like a husband who cheats on his wife. His wife, she may take him back after he cheats once. He comes back and he says, I'm so sorry. And she takes him back because she loves him and she wants him to be a part of the family. But then he goes and he does it again. And the wife says, go, and he goes. And this time she files for a divorce. Why? Why did this happen? He wouldn't listen to her. His sin separated him from his wife and his children. And that's what the Lord's telling us. Sin will rupture our relationship with the Creator. Second, uh, the law 
was given to define sin for the people. What is a sin? Who knew what a sin was? What's a sin? We read about prophets who were burnt by fire because they didn't burn the fire the right way. Fire's fire. Who knows the difference? Well, they knew the difference because God gave them instructions as to how to perform this particular action. But they didn't listen. They chose to do it their own way. In Romans 7, 7, Paul said, what shall we say then? Is lost sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. You know, there's only one reason why I know covetousness is a sin. There it is. The Lord said so. But what if he hadn't have told us that? What if he had have told us that covetousness is a sin and we lived our lives as covetous people, which is rather easy to do. We live our lives as covetous people. We go into the day of judgment and the Lord tells us he won't have anything to do with us because we were guilty of the sin of covetousness. And we look at him and we say, well, what is covetousness? I don't know what covetousness is. I didn't know it was wrong. I thought it was okay. It seemed like a natural thing to do. No, he doesn't do that to us. He gave us a set of instructions, a set of rules. He gave us a law that tells us what sin is. And that's what he did in the Old Testament. And wouldn't it only be reasonable that he would do the same for us in the New Testament era? The third thing is that divine justice requires a penalty for law-breaking. There's a penalty. When we sin against God, there's a penalty that has to be paid. God has all kinds of laws. He's got the law of gravity, for example. If you jump off the top of a three-story building and you say, uh-oh, on your way down, God save me, you're going to hit the ground. Why? You broke the law. We know that the law of gravity insists that if we were to jump off a three-story building, we're going to fall to the ground. We know that. The law is certain. It's fixed. It's there. And if we jump off a three-story building, we have to pay the piper. Sooner or later, we will hit the ground, and we will hurt. That's what the law demonstrated. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Apostle Paul was talking about Israel in the wilderness uh, when they first came out under Moses, and then they had to spend 40 years in the wilderness uh, wandering around. When they came out of Egypt, they went to the Mount Sinai. They were only supposed to be there for two years. God was going to prep them so that they could be a nation and go into the land of Canaan and occupy that land. Two years and you're out. Well, all they did was sin against God. You know, everything God said do, they got mad about. They didn't want to do it. A couple times they wanted to kill Moses, and the Lord had to stop them. I mean, just time after time after time after time. Paul rehearses those things. He talks about the fact that all of the Israelites came out of Egypt, where they were slaves. All of the Israelites were given water from a rock. 
all of the Israelites ate food that fell down from heaven. They didn't have to work for it. God provided it. All of the Israelites ate the meat that God supplied, the birds that flew into the camp that was there for the Israelite meals. God blessed all of them in the very exact same way. And then he says, but with all of the Israelites, God was not well pleased. Because they would not believe him. No matter what he did, they would not believe him. And they would turn on him and rebel. So God, because of their violation, God sentenced them to death. Instead of staying two years in the wilderness, they were going to have to stay a total of 40 years. And the reason for that was this. Within that 40-year period, everyone above the age of 20 years was going to die in the wilderness. The Lord knew how long it would take for all those people to die, and there could have been as many as 2 to 4 million people. We don't know. There was a lot of people. But they had sinned, and the ultimate penalty for sin is death. So God sentenced them to death in the wilderness. They would never set foot in his promised land. And that's what happened. Now, in 1 Corinthians, Paul's talking about that particular event. And then he made this statement. Now, all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come. God recorded that event about the exodus and the downfall of the Israelites occupies more space in the Bible than any other single event does. He recorded all of those things so that you and I would know that if we sin, the penalty for sin is death. That's why he wrote the Old Testament. It was written for their sakes and it was written for our sakes as well. The Old Testament law existed for reasons. It wasn't just a law of giving. It was a law that was going to protect the Israelites if they would live by the law. What about the design of the new covenant? It's much simpler. As history demonstrates, people needed a savior. Nobody could keep the law. Nobody, not one soul could keep the law. Everybody, every single body that lived who was of an accountable age Every single one sinned against God, just like you and I did. And they needed to know that. You can't be good enough. No matter what you do, you can't be good enough. Try as hard as you may, you can't be good enough. You'll never be so good that you'll justify your own salvation. It isn't going to happen. God wrote the Old Testament so that we would learn that, we would know that. And we would have to have help. And God sent the help. His name is Jesus. He's our help out of our dilemma. We don't have to die the eternal death. We earned it. The wages of sin is death, Paul said. We earned it. But because of the love of Christ and his great mercy, we don't have to die the death we earned. And people needed to know that. And this is revealed to us in the New Testament. 
The New Testament stresses the redemptive sacrificial mission of Christ as the one and only solution for our sin problem. He's the only way we can get out of our dilemma. There is no other way. There is no other help. There is no other hope. Either we embrace Christ or we're going to go to hell, and there's nothing else you and I can do about it. That decision was made in the long ago. It's up to us. Some people say, well, I'd rather go to hell. You shall. You shall. That's what you'd rather do. You shall do that. It is written. But what the New Testament teaches us is that it doesn't have to be that way. For God so loved the, the world that he would give his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have life and have it everlasting. It doesn't make sense, really, when you stop and think about it. In Matthew 26, 28, Jesus said, This is my blood of the new covenant. Remember the old covenant with Moses and Israel? The new covenant with Jesus and the church? This new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins, his blood was shed to take away all the sins, those who embrace the new covenant. By grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift from God, not of your works, lest anyone should boast. Sometimes I remember all my life I had people tell me I'm not good enough to be a Christian. No one is. We're all sinners. We've all sinned. We all earned death as our payment. That's a, that's a non-issue. Of course you're not good enough. But do you want to be? Do you want to be? Do you want to walk with Christ instead of walking the way you're walking? Do you want to live instead of die? Do you want heaven instead of a flaming fire hell? The choice belongs to us, my brothers and sisters. It belongs to us, too. A good beginning is a good thing, but we've got to run our race well. How am I doing? The Lord knows. I know. How am I doing? <clears throat> no grace under the old system, some say. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found what wasn't there. How about that? He goes on to say in verse 22, Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Why? Because the Lord knew Noah would obey him. And because Noah was determined... <clears throat> To believe and obey the Lord, <clears throat> Noah received divine grace. He and his family was raised above the floodwaters, and they didn't have to perish that day. The world died by water. Noah was saved by water. It all depends on if you're a member of the covenant or not. In Noah's day, it was a member of the ark. Well, the covenant is an ark as well. Those who were in the ark were saved. In Hebrews 11 and 7, the Hebrews author said, By faith Noah, 
being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Let's think about what he said there for just a moment. By which, because of by which he condemned the world, because of by which he became the heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. By which Noah was moved, by which he prepared the ark. He condemned the world, he became the heir of righteousness. What does move imply? It implies that Noah believed the Lord. If he hadn't believed the Lord, he wouldn't have built that ark. That thing was huge. He wouldn't have built that ark. But Jehovah told him what he was going to do. Noah believed it. He's going to store the world with water. And the only place of safety is in that ark. And he built that ark to get his family in so that they could survive the anger of God. Now, Noah believed God, but there's more. Noah obeyed God. He not only believed what God said about destroying the world with water, he did what the Lord told him to, to avoid the tragedy. He didn't want to die in a flood. He didn't want his family to perish in a flood. So Noah believed and he obeyed, by which his belief and obedience, by which he condemned the world, And he became the heir of righteousness. Oh, there's grace in the Old Testament. There's law too, but there's grace. John said in 1 John 3 and 4, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness. What is that? To be without law. To live as though you're not bound to a law. Some people live that way. They rob banks. They run red lights. They do all kinds of things. There's a law. I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. Well, there's a law that pertains to humanity in general. All people are amenable to the law of God. All people are amenable. All people have to give an account to Jesus Christ because he has all power and authority. In the day of the judgment, we will all, all, not just Christians, we shall all be judged by the word of God. There are some people who live lawless lives. They are without law. They don't think about that law. They're not interested in that law. They live life the way they choose. That's a lawless person, according to the biblical definition of the term. In Romans 14, Paul said, where there is no law, there is no transgression. Where there is no law, there is no sin. That's what that means. If there's no law today, there is no sin today. We can't be guilty of violating a law if law doesn't exist. Now, does that make sense to you? There's no grace in the Old Testament. There's no law in the New Testament. Does that make sense to you? That's not what the Bible teaches. In 1 John 1, 8 through 2 and 2, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Well, the only way I could be guilty of sin if there is a law that I have violated. And according to John, if I say I haven't got any sin, I'm a liar. But if there isn't a law, how could I be a sinner? Does that make sense to you? doesn't make any sense to me. Why do people say such things? 
because they want to do it their way. They don't have they don't want to have to be in submission to God. I'm talking about religious people at the moment. They just want to live their own way. They it's good enough. It's it's from the heart. I major on the the, the most important parts of Christianity. Why why would God fool with the little details? That just doesn't make sense. If sin exists, and it does, then law exists as well. Isaiah said the Christian age would have law in Isaiah 2, 2 and 3. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, Jerusalem, and shall be exalted above the hills. All nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, the temple. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He's talking about the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, the law went out from Zion and unto the ends of the earth. Jeremiah spoke of the law of the last days in Jeremiah 31, 33. He said, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. There was going to be a law during the New Age dispensation, irregardless of what preachers might say today. There is. Men today might not respect divine law, but the apostles did. Paul talks about the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. He said, it's made me free from the law of sin and death. You have there the law of the Spirit. Well, we know that the law was given by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit delivered that law unto men. So I understand why it's called the law of the Spirit. He was involved in dispersing the law unto humanity. But it's also the law of the Spirit of life. Why of life? Well, it's because the Spirit has the power to give life. He is the Spirit of life. He can give life, and he does. The law of the Spirit who gives life. But notice now, it's found in Christ Jesus. If you want to receive the law of the Spirit of life, you must be in Christ Jesus. And then what happens if you are? Paul continues. He said, the law of the Spirit of life made me free. From the law of sin and from the law of death. Free from, free from sin and its adverse effects. That's what the spirit of life has done for us. Us who are in Christ Jesus. For the rest, no. And it breaks my heart. Paul wasn't ashamed of the law. To those who were without law, these are the non-Israelites, Paul wrote, he behaved as without law. He's talking about his endeavor to convert people. Convert, he's going over the world, and he's talking to people who are very different from him. And basically what he is saying is, I became like the people I was talking to so I could speak to them in a way that they would understand. To a poor man, I spoke as though I were a poor man. 
to a rich man, I spoke as though I were a rich man. I spoke to each person at his level to make sure he could understand what I was talking about. Well, now he's talking about someone different. He said, to those who are without law, these are non-Israelites. They didn't have law of Moses. Law of Moses only pertained to Israel. It didn't pertain to the Gentile world. They were without law. They had no law. He said, to those who were without law, these non-Israelites, I behaved as though I were without law as well. Not, I wasn't without law toward God. He's saying, don't misunderstand me. This is parenthetical. I, wasn't with, I, I, I spoke to them as one who knew what it was like to be without law. But that doesn't mean I was without law. I was under law toward Christ. That I might win those who are without law, the non-Israelites. Paul did everything he could trying to make converts. And it was a difficult road to hoe. I got so much more, but I got to stop. That clock is winking at me. And it's time for me to stop. Oh. If you are not a Christian, every week, week after week, me or Ronald gets up here and begs people to obey the gospel. And most of the time, nobody will. But come next week, we'll get up there and do it again. Because we know that even though today may not be a good day, Next week might. So we don't give up. We come back again and again and again. If you are not a Christian, you're going to go to hell. Let's not pull punches. We don't have time. This could be the last day of our life. I just don't know. If you're not a Christian, you will lose your soul. You will burn in an everlasting fire that will never go out. I can't even imagine that kind of pain. But Jesus said it would be, and I take him at his word. That's no way to exist, and that's all that would be existing throughout eternity. No living, only existing. What a horrible end, especially for people who have been gifted such an amazing opportunity. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ who died for the sins of humanity. If you're willing to stop sinning. And to live the way Christ wants us to live. Then you need to say so. You need to be immersed in water. Because that's when God forgives us. You be raised a new creature, a different person, child of God, a member of the family of God. And then it becomes our mission, all of us, to do what we can to help you along life's way, to ensure your success. As Christians, sometimes, sometimes we get off course. We don't want to but we do. I don't know why. You don't know why. We just do. So, hopefully, one day we'll come to ourselves 
I'm not right with God. Confess our sins and ask God for forgiveness because that's what he's waiting for.